Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today, we're joined by Roy Salome. Roy has recently retired from JP Morgan's private bank, where he was the managing director and global head of the Investment Opportunities Group. Prior to that, he had an illustrious career in commodities, both with Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. At JP Morgan, he was vice chairman of global commodities and also global head of sales and structuring. Today, we're here to talk about commodities for investors. Why should investors think about commodities and what are the various pros and cons around the instruments they can invest in? And also, what's the forward outlook for commodities as a sector? Roy, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. So I guess we're here to talk about commodities for investors, commodities as an asset class. I want to start off by asking, why should investors around the world care about commodities? That's a great question. Maybe I think we can start by talking about you know, the debate that has raged on for years. Commodities as an asset class, is it truly an asset class? Or is it not? Does it qualify? Does it have the prerequisite kind of profile to really be uh, described as an asset class? And I think that debate has really been settled. And it is indeed perceived by many institutional investors and, and other market participants as indeed an asset class and has occupied this space for now a number of years as it has matured. Commodities, though, for me, more so than the debate around asset class and its role in the portfolio, and we'll spend a few minutes on that afterwards, is really, in my mind, the macro of all macros. And the reason why I say this, when we think of foreign exchange and the interconnectivity of you know, global uh, value of currencies and their impact on trade and, and purchasing power as driver of global economic activity, commodities in many respects actually occupies a similar, if not bigger role. When you think of all the different sub-asset classes in that macro asset class from industrial metals to to obviously energy, all of these elements uh, are really at the core of what makes the world go round. And uh, for me, thinking about commodities and thinking about exposure to commodities and thinking about commodities as an asset class starts by understanding the fundamentals of commodities in order for you to be able to understand the macroeconomic outlook and what is going on in terms of trends, emerging trends, or sunsetting trends in a global macroeconomic perspective. And that, for me, is, is probably uh, dwarfs the whole discussion of is commodities from a financial perspective an asset class or not? Because at the end of the day, when you think of commodities in terms of its overall size from a financial perspective, and global exposure to commodities, in the financial markets, it's really de minimis by comparison to other financials like equities and fixed income. It's it's not even a tenth of a percent in terms of you know overall notional dollar exposure. But the importance of commodities to the macroeconomic landscape and global trends in economic cycles is absolutely vital. And for me, that's the most important aspect and why people should pay attention and focus on commodities and have an understanding of what is going on in the commodity space. What should investors therefore just be reading about commodities or do they, is there something they get by actually investing in commodities that I guess provides more insight and, and more, I guess, forward-looking data to understand the broader macroeconomics going on? 
I would say both. Being educated and have an understanding of commodity cycles and what is going on in the physical markets at a, at a high level uh, is very important to forming an understanding and a view. Uh, as far as investing in commodities, is there a benefit? Uh, for sure. Expressing a view or taking a view on um, uh, macroeconomic activity and the, the cycles that we're in and expressing that view in addition to expressing it through equities or fixed income from an interest rate perspective or currencies for that matter, uh, expressing it through commodities can be quite rewarding while obviously uh, representing significant risk given its volatility. It kind of ranks in the same level of volatility as equities and at times even more volatile than equities. So in terms of risk reward, you've got to think of commodity price risk exposure um, the way you think about equities. Uh, and, and from that perspective, clearly expressing a view, a bullish or bearish, through a commodity, uh, particularly in the energy space or in the industrial metal space like copper, which, which kind of in many respects is a barometer, you know, industrial demand is actually quite valuable and could be very rewarding uh, if done right. I was going to ask my, my, my two other questions on this particular segment are, Firstly, are there certain commodities that are better at providing that kind of leading indicator information? And I know you were involved in in the early, you know, instrumental in the in the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, one of the early commodity indexes. Is you know, is there data out there? Is there actual evidence that these you know that we we see it as a leading indicator? The first part of your question: Are there specific commodities that are kind of leading indicators. Uh, for me, uh, in the industrial metal space, uh, I would consider copper to be uh, the king of that of that particular segment. I would consider crude oil and Brent more so than WTI as being the barometer from a, a global energy perspective. And when natural gas ultimately become, in terms of its price discovery, a global commodity, uh, like the evolution that we saw in oil, the minute we started kind of transacting and moving oil on super tankers around the world and creating a global oil market, which hasn't yet happened, although we're on our way to developing a global natural gas market with the growth in LNG in all parts of the world, eventually we will have a global natural gas market and a global price discovery and a global benchmark. Right now, we have regional benchmarks for natural gas. And ultimately, that global price for natural gas will also be at par with Brent as a global benchmark for crude and as far as metals are concerned, copper. So for me, these are the three kind of leading indicators for, for ultimately getting a pulse, so to speak, of supply and demand fundamentals in, in, in commodities. I would add to that mix gold, although it is not a classic commodity per se. It is a financial asset. It's a commodity. Uh, it's an industrial metal in some respects, um, but together with silver, obviously, which has even more of an industrial overtone to its usage. But gold plays an important role and is an important signal in terms of inflationary pressures building out and the views of investors and central banks and monetary authorities in terms of uh, the inclusivity of gold as part of the reserves and accumulation and increased accumulation of gold, uh, like we have seen over the past several years by central banks, um, 
is a leading indicator of a concern about potential inflationary pressures down the road, um, and particularly in a zero to negative interest rate environment like the one we're in at the moment and have been in for quite some time, particularly now the United States having basically set a policy of zero interest rate for the foreseeable future, gold has taken on an importance. And because of the fact that dollar rates are at zero, uh, there is little negative drag about including gold in a portfolio because you're not losing much on or losing anything on the fact that gold is not yielding positive returns in terms of holding it as an asset, uh, and you can afford to hold it and hope for the protection it affords you in an inflationary environment, but we've seen that uptick in price obviously reflect that investor sentiment towards, towards that metal. So for me, all of these four really are the, the principal kind of um, uh, pillars of the asset class. Is there evidence of the GSCI, let's say, of that, that index? Uh, was an important catalyst behind uh, the whole establishment of commodities as an asset class, the formalization of the view that commodities deserve a role in a portfolio as part of an asset class mix in a diversified portfolio. And the premise behind it was because of the fact that commodity prices tend to be negatively correlated to financials, they tend to rise in a rising interest rate environment where financials tend to do poorly in a rising interest rate environment, they tend to, when, when put together with financials at a reasonable percentage, say somewhere between 3 and 5% of the portfolio construction, they tend to reduce overall volatility of returns and improve overall returns. So um, uh, because of this negative correlation to financials. So that was the premise behind creating the, com- the commodity index. And then uh, subsequently, there were other indices that were established to give you an exposure to the asset class without you having to take a specific position or a view on a particular underlying sub-asset class like energy or uh, industrial metals or precious metals. So they're all part of those indices. And, and a number of institutional market participants have traditionally used these indices uh, to, to diversify and take advantage of this negative correlation as part of their asset. Yeah, and I want to carry on uh, talk a bit more about indexes in a moment because obviously uh, they've 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 come into under some fire depending on how they're actually constructed recently as well with obviously the um, negative oil prices and theories around um, index funds having a, a role to play in that. Before we move on to that, just that debate around commodities as an asset class does that ultimately stem from the fact that unlike equities, um, bonds, and so forth, there's no actual, it, they don't generate an income, there's no free cash flow that, that come off them in the form of coupons or, or dividends? To some extent, yes, Paul, although obviously the construction, if you think of the GSCI as a perfect example and the roll yield, the GSCI from the return, the total return perspective is made up of you know the spot return associated with price increases or decreases of the underlying commodities that are uh, part of the index. And it's also this roll yield associated with rolling the first nearby contract, um, uh, second into first, second into first continuously um, as, as time passes and that contract comes to maturity, these futures contract come to maturity. These by themselves, these roll yields provide a return 
in addition to obviously the return associated with the underlying uh, treasuries. So there are three components that mimic a little bit a, uh, it's not a coupon, it's not a dividend, uh, but there are other aspects aside from absolute price appreciation or depreciation of the underlying commodity that may generate returns um, and, and complement the returns, particularly if you are in a backwardated uh, curve structure, uh, which obviously represents a positive roll yield because you're basically buying every time a second nearby that is at a discount to the first nearby, you're selling it at a higher price than what you bought it at. And by default, that provides you a positive roll yield to complement you know, if the price has of the underlying commodity has gone up, this is incremental return to the price appreciation, capital appreciation. That's the best way I can try to kind of mimic a little bit uh, a dividend or a coupon for you, aside from the actual appreciation or depreciation of the underlying asset. Yeah, there are just a, there are index funds out there as well, though that that actually hold the asset itself and, and warehouse it, which itself brings risks or costs, sorry, that aren't present in holding an equity. Sure, absolutely. The, the ETFs uh, are, are holders of the underlying commodities uh, by default. They're holders of the actual uh, contract or holders of the metal, uh, like gold ETFs. So, and, and they incur uh, storage costs and, or incur vaulting costs, etc. But so for sure, ETFs that have come about definitely hold the underlying asset uh, through these contracts, through the futures contracts, which obviously, like in the case of USO, uh, we saw uh, these are actual contracts that would come up for delivery if they were not um, uh, liquidated uh, prior to uh, entering into that uh, delivery cycle. If held on through that, through that expiry will ultimately result in a physical delivery of, of crude oil. This has a role in in portfolio theory. You know, you mentioned about it's it, it, beyond just generating insight and being a leading indicator. It also has some benefits about not being correlated with other potential market events. You know, protection against inflation and so forth. I would caveat this only with with the following statement: that when there is a general risk on or risk off sentiment in the market, like we saw during the global financial crisis, or like we saw earlier this year. Um, uh, at the onset of the COVID pandemic in, in mid-March. That negative correlation uh, breaks down because in a risk-off sentiment, there is nowhere to hide. The capital is lis- literally liquidating across the board and taking risk off the table, and commodities are not an exception in this case. With As I think we've seen with the possible exception of gold, you know, where, um, you know, you've obviously seen gold prices rise quite dramatically. Yes, that's a flight to safety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've sat in this exact seat. You're sat opposite, you know, some of the wealthiest families, you know, institutions talking about investment opportunities. It sounds like there's a compelling reason why you should think about have some exposure to commodities. And I think as we've already alluded to, there's a whole slew of different pathways to do that. Can you walk us through some of what the um, those pathways are. You know, how would you advise your client to actually get exposure to commodities? You're absolutely right, Paul. There is now a, a broad spectrum of uh, different ways of gaining exposure to commodities. 
through exposure directly to the underlying, either through futures contracts or through ETFs that have uh, a direct exposure to the underlying and track an underlying commodity specifically. There is obviously exposure to the underlying equities that have uh, whose principal business um, is the underlying commodity. In my view, though, the purest way to express and gain exposure, if you have a view on the underlying commodity and want to participate in that market to complement a view on, you know, the broader macroeconomic um, uh, cycle, I would personally opt for either to facilitate the investment through a specific ETF that is tracking a particular commodity, such as a gold ETF or an oil ETF, or if you want to have a view on a particular sector like the EMP sector, there are ETFs that track and have a basket of underlying ENP companies, exploration and production companies, as what they track in their underlying equity basket. And then you can gain an exposure uh, to that particular segment by being long that particular ETF. Now, I would stay away from inverse ETFs, uh, which are is a way of shorting a particular uh, segment or a particular commodity. Uh, uh, these are highly uh, dangerous and, and uh, particularly levered uh, inverse ETFs are incredibly, incredibly volatile. And uh, I would I would uh, stay away if one has uh, a bearish view on an underlying commodity, then uh, I would express it through an option strategy by being long a put option on a particular underlying commodity because I'm bearish, and 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 leave it at that. Mm, it's interesting. So ETFs to get exposure to the dire- you know, directly to the commodity. Uh, if you're looking at more sort of a regional approach, there's there's ETFs out there. Obviously, over the last 20 years, and you know we've discussed on this podcast whether it's actually been a successful strategy. There's been a number of commodity focused funds. W- what's your view on in, in investing in hedge funds in commodities? Uh, any take there? Now that now that you're out the industry and you can you know <laughs> perhaps perhaps be a bit more open about that. Well, some of them have done quite well. And a number of them have closed shop. Uh, it's been a very difficult market to trade uh, in the past several years. Uh, the pie has shrunk quite dramatically um, in the asset class, broadly speaking, and the returns have been uh, much more uh, challenging um, over the past several years, although 2019 and 2020 are both proving to be much more lucrative years, again, from a commodity trading perspective, because uh, the, 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 the recent volatility in prices has brought about a, a more um, conducive environment. Uh, but prior to that, these markets had been very challenging. And as a result, we saw a number of commodity-focused hedge funds really return capital back to their investors and, and close shop. And returns had been quite disappointing. So a quant have not been as active in the commodity space as we have seen them uh, really in other asset classes, in the financials in particular, uh, although they have started to develop of late. And uh, we've seen uh, recently returns uh, from the likes of, um, uh, you know, some of the largest players uh, like Millennium, et cetera, deliver quite uh, significant positive returns 
in this asset class, which is quite encouraging. So I guess changing gears, you know, we're now, dare I say it, approaching 2021. Can't believe it's September already and feels more like March 72nd or something like that, um, given the year that we've had. But as you look forward, you know, how would you be advised? We're going through a, a time of significant change in the commodities world. It's under pressure from energy transition, both the twin forces of globalization, but also sort of balkanization of, of trading partners. What would you be advising if, if you could start, you know, a, a client fresh today, their commodities exposure? What trends would you th- be thinking about and how would you gain exposure to them? First thing I would caution about the fact that while we are indeed in a, in a, in a, in a transition, uh, particularly in an energy transition, um, which has been accelerated, obviously, with um, climate change gaining more momentum and, and the science behind climate change gaining greater respectability, particularly post-COVID. I want to caution that this will take uh, several decades to actually materialize. The progression and the transition will be slow, and it is not uh, a switch, and it is not something that investors uh, can position for and look for short-term or even medium-term gains that are substantial in nature. with the exception of a few plays, and obviously that the, the, the you know the cat is out of the bag in some respect, the, the likes of Tesla, you know that trend is definitely in motion. It is visible. Uh, if you look at the International Energy Agency, aside from COVID, the decline post-COVID recovery, you know, um, the decline, uh, progressive decline in hydrocarbon consumption is definitely part of their forecast uh, for. Uh, five years out and 10 years out, you see those declines in their forecasts, but they're very gradual. So I would caution around positioning for this transition aggressively to the short side against hydrocarbons and to the long side against renewables, because uh, uh, that's a recipe for for pain, in my opinion. Uh, One has to be gradualistic in their approach, measured and tactical. For instance, I really think while I am you know, somewhat bearish to neutral in the front end of oil at the moment, uh, I do believe that you know, two or three years out, as a result of the very dramatic capex reduction that we have experienced over the past year in particular, we're going to see this bottleneck emerge, a, a supply shortage in two, three, four years' time on the back of sustained, albeit slightly weaker demand, but strong demand nonetheless, we're going to see tightness in the markets that is going to weigh on markets and prices, which is the only way to force these markets back into equilibrium uh, when supply and demand are out of out of balance, uh, are expected, in my opinion, to firm up um, in in that. So I'm I'm constructive energy. I'm constructive oil prices where I would see Brent going back into the mid-60s to mid-70s, you know, uh, two or three years out because of this supply-demand tightness. Um, but I'm not particularly constructive in the front end. So while overall I am uh, of the view that the energy transition is accelerating, there is still a bullish outlook, medium term, that can be capitalized on and and 
uh, one should not ignore. You see what I mean? So I, uh, that's what I, what, what I refer to by being tactical in one's view and, and measured in one's positioning to take advantage of these uh, short to medium term uh, developments that are going to be quite important as we continue through this transition. On the strategic side, and <laughs> you know, I'm going to get my investment accounts ready. There is a clear path of energy transition. There is this, you see this increasing demand for batteries, um, et cetera, et cetera. Are there new commodities that you would be advising clients to start to take positions in, whether it's, you know, there might not be the ETFs available, but through equities that you think will become more dominant and therefore increase in value over the next 20 years? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of focus on, you know, cobalt, and a lot of focus on rare earth, a lot of focus on lithium. Um, uh, there are obviously companies that are prominent producers of all of these. Some of them are not traded on the public markets. Some are, particularly in the lithium producers. Uh, there are some publicly traded companies that one can position in. But uh, there's been tremendous volatility in these equities. I think it's, again, a bit too early to really kind of uh, make a decisive play on. And people have looked at this, Paul. If I wanted to express a view on renewables, do I want to look at the end product? Do I want to look at the components that go into making this end product? Do I want to look at an electric vehicle or do I want to take um, uh, an exposure to the semiconductors that uh, the usage in an electric vehicle of semiconductors is going to be significantly higher? Do I want to take a look at all of the advances uh, taking place around 5G, which are going to be incredibly important to autonomous vehicle, which is going to be very much part of the electric vehicle kind of, and you saw that in Tesla, you're seeing that in the new generation, let's say, of the S-Class Mercedes that are they're launching right now, the hybrid and the EV, um, which is coming out next year. It, they're quasi-autonomous. Uh, all of these are coming hand in hand. And do you want to take a view on you know, how do you take advantage of that versus do you position, do you get long, you know, Tesla, you get long, you know, uh, a Baidu, you get long, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, a an electric vehicle company in China, etc. Those are uh, continuous debates. And it's really a matter of liquidity, a matter of depth of market to be able to really position in relevant size to be able to make the investment kind of relevant. And that's been the challenge. You know, we saw we saw some significant positioning in lithium and we saw some significant volatility and disappointment uh, a couple of years ago as people tried to kind of take advantage of the dramatic increase in electric vehicle production in, in China, uh, particularly when it became one of the Chinese government kind of strategic initiatives with significant support and, and, and backing. And um, prices uh, skyrocketed and proceeded to come off sharply. Uh, so it left a lot of investors kind of a bit disappointed by all of that. But again, the trend is, is returning. And I think there, is, uh, uh, there are merits, but again, within reason, to position for the underlying component of either batteries or electric vehicles or um, uh, versus the finished product or the companies themselves, the equities that are driving that particular development forward. 
on an accelerated basis. Same goes for wind, same goes for solar. There are a number of ETFs that are dedicated to renewables and dedicated to solar um, that have been quite popular. And there are um, uh, similarly uh, wind, there are a number of vehicles that have uh, come on that have been quite successful in really kind of honing in and allowing an investor to express a particular view on that sector. My view is to look carefully at the universe of investments available and look at the liquidity uh, afforded to an investor in each one of those instances and make a decision if you want to express the view through the component or through the end product or through the underlying equity if that equity is traded uh, uh, publicly uh, and or through an ETF that creates a basket of a number of these equities and companies um, that could afford you uh, an element of diversification to a, a particular sector that you have a view on. So that would be the progression in my mind. It's fascinating. It strikes me that um, I guess by focusing on the underlying commodity, you can avoid some of that political uncertainties that surround energy transition in particular, whether you've got governments that are um, accelerating it or not. You know, you, I guess it removes some of that noise. Is that a fair statement? Sure, it does. And and usually, uh, you know, like in, in all cases, uh, particularly in commodities, um, uh, the purest way to express a view is through the underlying as opposed to being long or short a particular equity because you're introducing noise into that investment that is not necessarily related to the underlying. Uh, so uh, you're bringing in management, uh, you're bringing in uh, uh, decision-making and corporate decision-making uh, that is not necessarily um, uh, in line with the, with the underlying uh, commodity and, and its, its price cycle. So you, you're bringing in exogenous elements to that investments that are unrelated to the underlying that uh, introduce uh, noise into that investment that if you can avoid it, Unless you're excited about the underlying commodity, uh, the, the underlying company itself and its strategy and its management, its heading and et cetera, et cetera, uh, then, then the purest uh, way to really kind of uh, gain that exposure is through, through the underlying itself. And that applies across, across whether it's renewables or otherwise. Final question, and I guess changing tack slightly, cryptocurrencies have been allied to commodities, even within institutions as well. It seems like some of the management teams from commodities have, have moved into cryptocurrencies, or at least that's fallen within their purview. Is that a, what are your thoughts there for investors? Is, is, does that share some of the similar attributes? Is it something that you would consider a part of a portfolio? I mean, look, a lot of people kind of equate the development of cryptocurrencies to the early days of the development of commodities from a financial perspective. Yes, there are definitely elements to that. There are definitely, uh, which is why commodity traders have made the transition, particularly during the lean years in commodity trading that we were just talking about earlier uh, in our conversation when returns were uh, not that attractive. A number of uh, commodity traders migrated to cryptocurrency trading. Uh, and, and there are definitely similarities in the way uh, these markets have evolved and Having said that, I, I really don't equate. I mean, uh, yeah, a number of people have made the analogy of uh, cryptocurrencies as a store of value. I don't subscribe to that view. It doesn't have the 
breadth, scope, and um, uh, established uh, goal uh, and value that gold has. Gold's perceived value as uh, an asset that is no one's liability and has an intrinsic value built into it. Bitcoin aspires to be that, that store of value and no third party's liability, uh, which in, in principle, it does have the profile by, by construction, uh, but in terms of acceptance, it is, is very far from that still. So for me to kind of equate these at that level to say it's a store of value just like gold, I think that's where the argument falls apart. Uh, there are definite similarities in the way these are progressing between currencies and commodities from a financial perspective and their acceptance uh, as, as an institutional marketplace with transparency and price discovery that gives institutional market participants the comfort that they are trading in a market that is regulated and transparent, uh, which is not the case yet. There are participants that are starting to make an effort to institutionalize cryptocurrency trading, but, but it's, it's very few yet that have achieved that, and it will take time. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion, Roy, and I, and I think actually brings to the front kind of my passion for commodities is really because it is at the center of global macroeconomics, global policies, you know, um, global trade. You know, in the end, I think, as you highlighted right at the very start, you know, if you're interested and follow and have an exposure to global markets, then some knowledge of commodities is really important to inform your views. And, and I really appreciate you you coming on and talking not only about, I guess, commodities and why we should care about them, but also, you know, if you have the interest, uh, you know, how how you should go about thinking about um, investing in them. Yeah, I appreciate it, Paul. And, and for me, uh, one additional dimension beside all the ones you mentioned, which I completely agree with, is the geopolitics, the global geopolitics of commodities and the interconnectivity of that um, is, is absolutely fascinating. I mean, if you think about one of the evolution we didn't touch on on the call, you know, we talked about renewables and we talked about the transition from, you know, uh, the industrial into, uh, which is hydrocarbon based and, and hydrocarbon intensive, the industrial age, to this new age we're entering into, and the challenge that uh, climate change is 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 posing, uh, and the need to transition to uh, less carbon intensive uh, energy sources uh, is is really uh, even the stress around uh, you know uh, food security and water, and these are global trends that uh, have yet to really kind of become uh, or rise to the forefront of investors' kind of uh, psychology. Uh, when they look at uh, global emerging trends, food security is going to become a, a very important issue as arable land uh, becomes ever more scarce and and global population continues to uh, rise rapidly. And scarcity of water, depleting our water resources and sweet water resources, aquifers at unbelievable rates. And soon the only alternative left is going to be desalination of ocean water and the amount of energy demand that that comes uh, hand in hand with desalination is is enormous. The implications of that are are uh, huge, and the geopolitics of water water will become the focal point, just like oil was in the 20th century. 
and drove wars and geopolitics at, at an absolutely existential level. The fight for reserves and positioning for control of oil, water will be the feature of the 21st and the 22nd century and beyond. And access to water and the ability to control water supply is going to become the absolute uh, new focal point of global geopolitics. So for me, uh, that's a commodity that has yet to be um, uh, kind of part of the equation and to be discussed and, and evaluated in its own right as absolutely central. We can avoid to take a car, we can avoid to fly, we can avoid to, you know, uh, you know, do all sorts of things, but we can't live without water. It's that simple. It's that existential. Um, as, as much as we thought oil was essential to life and growth and development, water is at an even higher level of existential threat. That's part of why commodities are so fascinating for me as well. And we're already seeing that in the Middle East, right? You know, there's very, very limited international treaties and, and I guess enforcement of around being downstream very much so. of other countries. Um, you know, and as you say, you know, oil might cause a, a, an economic or a political spat. Uh, water is a whole different scale, right? Absolutely. Fascinating to have you on, Roy. We really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a, a really interesting discussion. And again, I think highlights another just how interesting this sector is. So thank you very much. And, um, you know, I hope we can connect again soon and, and, and continue the discussion on, a, on another episode. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more about HC, go to hcinsider.global, where there's more news and content focused on the commodities markets.